If you would, grab a Bible, turn it to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 14 through 16 this morning, so you can anticipate where we're going to be. Not, not too many verses at all, really. Today we're starting a new series. It's titled Church. Just that simple, Church. But it's in conjunction with um, a larger effort over the next month to talk about this very subject matter. Um, Next week we'll be having our Doctrine and Devotion uh, teaching sets beginning. And um, this month we had planned on doing the Doctrine of God, but we're going to push that back. And uh, we're actually going to be doing the Doctrine of God's People or the Doctrine of the Church uh, because it goes hand in hand with this subject. Um, in addition to that, uh, some of those of you who are regulars at City View or are members uh, here at our church, is, you know that we're also going to have uh, something of a, a new ministry plan for the next season of our church's life, um, disclosed in kind of bite-sized chunks. Um, really as a part of much larger plan we started a couple years ago called the 2020 Initiative, which talked about kind of just matching our rhythms one with another. Uh, we talked about it reading the same scriptures, and so we used the Community Bible Reading Journal to do that, knowing we're in the same scriptures. We can actually talk about it in uh, very easy ways with one another. Um, similar types of prayers that we offer um, and rhythms in general. And so we just want to talk a little bit more about the working out of that in the days ahead. Now, each of these will look a little bit different, but they're all focused on church and church life. Um, the sermons uh, that I start today are going to be as typical scripturally expository um, and simple, hopefully, for the most part. Um, and the goal of them is to stir our hearts to be the church to stir our hearts to be the church of Jesus in this place, in this time we live in. Uh, doctrine and devotion uh, will be a little bit more systematic, a little bit more theological. That's good. We need that um, because it provides something of a foundation. It also prevents us from the sin of reductionism where we don't just take one or two passages. We actually carry a thorough amount of passages uh, to come to uh, the meaning of a thing. And so um, definitely more systematic, definitely more theological. will be worth your time to be a part of that doctrine and devotion uh, session coming up. Um, also, uh, as far as the, um, the ministry plan we'll be releasing, um, it will be more in the vein of practicable, doable, actionable, um, again, just basic church life rhythms. Um, so anyway, that's what you have to look forward to, hopefully, over the next several uh, weeks, probably month or so. And uh, I, I just pray that the Lord does good things through it. But today, uh, we begin the series. Um, and it starts in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to read through verse 16. I'm going to read it for you. I'm coming out of the, C, um, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible Translation. Paul is writing this, and he says, I write these things to you. If you don't know who Paul is, he is one of the preeminent leaders of the church in the first century, and um, he was also used by God the Holy Spirit to write a good portion of what we call the New Testament, the latter portion of our Bible. So 
Um, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a pastor uh, at the church at Ephesus. And so this is a, 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 a letter, not just to Timothy, but to Timothy's church. Um, so he's reading it, but also the congregation is reading it. By extension, many, many, many years later, we are now reading it, and it's for us as well. I write these things to you, Timothy, and the church at Ephesus, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels or messengers, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. These are the words of God. As we enter this text, I want to give a little bit of background. I already already talked about the fact that this is a letter written by way of the Spirit through our ancient brother Paul and that he's writing it to Timothy and his church at Ephesus. That's, that's kind of important to know. And by extension, it's being written to us as well. But what you may not know is that this is accepted as pretty much the climactic center point of the letter of 1 Timothy. If you're familiar with the letter at all, there's a lot of really interesting things in 1 Timothy, both prior to this passage and after this passage. But most people believe, especially with the climactic hymn-like statements regarding Christ at the end of the passage we just read, that this is the center point, kind of the point at which he has reached optimal point of worship in the writing of this letter. He's going to get back to some practical things in just a few moments, in a few verses. But the center point of this letter to this church is about how they ought to conduct themselves as the church. The operative concern is their conduct, how they are being the church. So both previous to this and after this, he's mainly giving a ton of specific and actionable examples of conduct that he is calling for, that he's asking that they introduce into their church or reintroduce into their church at Ephesus. Now with that said, what Paul is saying in this climactic text, even if it's not exhaustive, I know it's not exhaustive, even if it's not exhaustive, it is incredibly insightful as to the nature of a local church. Like, just in passing, just in a few choice phrases and words, he has said a lot. In other words, there's plenty for us to chew on and consider in this short text passage answering the question, what is a church. What is a church? And to those insights, we turn our attention for the remainder of our time today into this text along with some other cross-referencing texts. Now, my outline will break 
down these insights into really three aspects of the church. Three aspects of the church that he details in this, uh, in this section of 1 Timothy. The first is this. The church is the church of the living God. The church is the church of the living God. Now just that short phrase has a lot to say to us. A lot to say to us. A local church is basically being described as God's people. But there's a little bit more to it when we drill down on what's actually said. In fact, the first two things I want to say about it relate to the Greek word ekklesia. Now, some of you heard Greek word and you're already pressing the the snooze button to come back out of your snooze when I'm done with the Greek. Now, may I remind you that I don't usually pull out Greek that often. That's Greg who pulls out Greek all the time. (laughs) Greg, you can expect it from him. And if you snooze during Greek during Greek during Greg's sermons, you're going to snooze all the time. Come on. The brother learned himself some Greek. Let's let him give it to us. That said, when I mention it, you better pay attention. Because I don't talk about it very often. Ecclesia means something, though. It really does. It has a couple of different variations on its meaning. One and they're both related, by the way, and they both, both cross-pollinate. The first one is this. The ecclesia is the called out by God. Those who are called out by God. In other words, we can say to be the church of the living God is to be God's people, but more specifically, God's chosen people. That's really important. To be the ecclesia of God is to be God's people, but his chosen people. Not just any people, his chosen people. Ecclesia also carries this meaning, and this one is very important and very dominant. Ecclesia can literally be translated as assembly. In other words, it's God's people called out to assemble, to gather, to meet. A gathering of God's people is the idea we get when we hear ecclesia, a gathering of God's chosen people. Now, in today's cultural climate, it's concerning that so many miss this aspect, this integral aspect of the local church. I just say it this way. You're not a local church if you're not gathering. That doesn't exist. It is integral to the nature, to the very definition of the word that is used for church. It's a gathering. No gathering, no church. So with that said, we have in our scripture texts several examples of why this shouldn't shock us. The Garden of Eden. Most scholars agree that it is unmistakable that the Garden of Eden is meant to mimic the temple. That it's meant to show us a garden temple made for our most ancient mother and father of the human race. 
Adam and Eve, were placed in a place of worship. Which tells you a lot about worship, that worship includes a lot of things. Tending, protecting, helping, gathering. It's a lot of things that we can do in worship. But it's a temple, and even though it was only two, they were there to be together. It is not good that man be alone. It's not that he just needs a wife to keep him company. It is because when God builds a temple, he means to gather a people. And so one of the aspects of it not being good that he's alone is he means to gather a people. And so he does. It may be only two, but it's a people. And then as we move forward into the history of the people of Israel, we see God taking a people, a nation, and he calls them out also to gather. In fact, one of the preeminent times in which they were actually being Israel, before they kind of weren't being Israel (laughs) not long after this, where they were really being the Israel of God, is as they gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai in God's presence with one another in worship. And we'll talk about worship as we move on this series, but also a little bit later, because that's included in this, that idea. But for right now, what's important is if you go to the, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, I do believe this is the first time, the first time that a people are described as the ecclesia, the gathering or assembly of God's people. And so they do church at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the temple. All of these things were a place where God's presence was. And outside of the tent of meeting where it was primarily Moses who went in, The tabernacle and the temple were meant as gathering locations. Places where the people of God would enter the presence of God to gather and worship together. They would gather up. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this is the nature of even the word ecclesia, church, that we are gathering. And without gathering, we're not the church. It's all throughout that. And furthermore... Furthermore, we see in these things pointers and images that are very, very important and detailed. God had a hand in the interior decoration of the temple, had very specific ideas as to what it would need to look like. The tabernacle and temple were God's design, and he told the people how to construct it and what it should look like, down to drapes and robes and whatnot. Because everything was an image, everything was a picture, everything was a pointer, everything was meant to draw people who might gather and splinter in their focus, bring them back to their focused attention on the gospel, on God, our redeeming God. What he does through the image of sacrifice, what he does through the image of coming and praying and worshiping, through the mediation of a priest, through the Mediation once a year of a high priest. All these things are telling them something. Furthermore, 
Churches also have always gathered, not so much historically on the Sabbath, but rather on what we consider the Lord's Day, the day that celebrates His resurrection, Sunday, the first day of the week. Historically, we have always gathered. The church has never not gathered, except for in very specific times and places for very specific reasons. And it's never for long that they don't gather. And as we gather, much like the tabernacle, we also have images and pictures. We have, we have the sacraments. We have, we have the bread, the wine. We have baptism. We have pictures of things that are meant to draw us back, to point to things, to tell us things. And that's one of the things I want to mention. What are we, all these things have in common is that they present images that are meant to draw us into the spiritual or even invite us into a transcendent experience. I don't mean that in a weird way. I mean in a, hey, the Lord is here. Heaven meets earth in some sort of unique way when his people gather. And that's really crazy. It's transcendent. It's not just bread. It's not just wine. It's not just baptism. It's not just water. It's not just someone baptizing someone in water. It's all representative of a much larger reality that has come, that is here, that you are invited to join in and experience when you come and gather to worship. This was unmistakably a part of the worship of the people of God going back in time, this idea of transcendence. It's also why the Hebrews writer in chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, reminds us that we should consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the way I read that is the further you get away from when the writer of Hebrew reads this, we should be even more committed to gathering together. Like, it shouldn't be a commitment that is becoming less important, but it actually should become more important or more urgent. It should be more apparent we need to gather as the people of God. He says, do not neglect as is the habit of some. Rick, I missed two weeks ago. Am I in trouble? I don't know. I can't answer that for you. If it was the result of the habit, the comfort of the habit of not having to wake up and get your rear here at 9 or 1030, then yeah, probably you are in trouble, but not by me. Lord is your judge. We gather because it's obedience. <laughs> Because to neglect otherwise, we miss the opportunity to what? To stir up one another love and good works? Encourage one another? I mean, there's things we do when we gather. It's encouraging for me to see you gather in worship. Can I tell you something I cannot get by watching our services online? And I do do that occasionally when I'm out of town. So I'm just going to let you know that. And for those who are homebound for some reason, ill for some reason, I'm glad that's there for that. 
But here's what I can't experience. I can't experience Faith Dotson singing in a worship service. Those of you who know Faith know that she makes a joyful noise unto the Lord and that she won't be put into the highest of high choirs that respect only skill and greatness. But I, can't hear, I cannot come in and not hear her sing and be put to shame over my heart and how it is not bleeding to want to experience my Lord like she does. I can't get that online. I can't get it online that I see someone out of the corner of my eye crying. And so it's a great gap filler. And we'll continue to do it for that reason. But you know what? We gather because there is encouragement in gathering. Friends, we do nobody, including ourselves, any good by valuing convenience, comfort, or even relevance over and above the sometimes inconvenient and culturally out-of-step nature of the devotion given to weekly rhythmic gathering where we celebrate the original Resurrection Sunday. We do no one any good by going for something that's a little less tedious, burdensome. In his book, Analog Church, Jay Kim, who's a pastor out in California, mentions this missed opportunity when we choose to value things like convenience, comfort, and relevance over and above the consistent and the devoted gathering together. He rightly points out the folly of that approach, the folly of it, because what it is, is the church and us trying to create some sort of a competition for relevance, convenience, and comfort with all the other things in the world that are trying to get a market share on those things. Can, can I spoiler alert you? The church will never win that. There are better means of human comfort. There are better means of convenience. There are better means of relevance. That's not the field we play on. We never win that. Never. What we have to offer, though, if I can pull it right back to what I was originally talking about, transcendence. What we have to offer, heaven and earth kiss when we join together. And the Spirit is here and he's real and he's present and we're present and we're with him and we're with one another what we have to offer in that transcendent minute minutes on Sunday morning is unique and it's a playing field on which friends we win that every single time Nobody's got game on us in a transcendent experience where the living God shows up and meets with his gathered people.
Let's not just stick on ecclesia. Let's see the other part of that phrase, the qualifying phrase. We are the ecclesia, the church of the living God, of the living God. In other words, we are called out by God to gather, assemble, or meet with our alive God, our out-of-the-tomb God, our God who is not in a grave, who is not a God of our own imagination or our minds. The people in that time that he was writing, writing to at Ephesus probably worshipped in the shadow of a very large temple to Diana. A God that is not real. A God that is a figment of their imagination. And he said, you have something different. Again, what is transcendent is our God is real. He lives. He is not dead and he is near. He comes and inhabits the praises of his people every Sunday morning. My Bible tells me so. And so we meet this alive God interacting with him, enjoying him and worshiping him together. And so we gather as God's people to worship and give God great glory as a result of his joining us here. And the fact that we are so privileged to gather up with one another and with him. And something of his on-fire aliveness should stir and catalyze us to a level of aliveness. See, see, all of you came in here as alive persons. None of you are dead. I get that. But John 10.10 10 says, I have come that they may have life and have it in a different kind of way, an abundant way, a full way. In other words, there's a way of living and a way of being alive that is completely different than just breathing oxygen and breathing out carbon dioxide. There's another level of being alive. And when we enter a place where the living God meets the gathering of his people, you have opportunity every single time to walk away a little more alive than you were when you walked in. That is good news, isn't it? That's worth getting excited about. That's worth getting fired up for to get out of your bed. Get excited for Let's go meet the alive God. He is out of the tomb. He is not dead. And he is not far off. He is near. And so we could say that we are a sacred, life-filling gathering of God's chosen people if we were to put all that together. This is a sacred place when we gather. This is a place where we should be kind of on our tiptoes wondering what maybe God might do today. What could he do today when his people meet and they gather and he comes and he shows up and he does what only he does? So we are the ecclesia of the living God, the church of the living God. But we're also, second, we are God's household. That's actually the first thing he mentions in this text. Again, it feels like it's just being said in passing, but it's not being said in passing. There's just so much he's saying here. We are God's household. So he's interested in how you conduct yourself in God's household. I'm going to invoke a little bit of 
Greek again. The household is the oikos. The oikos. God's household or oikos means a local church is fundamentally a spiritual family. It's a spiritual family. God's household or oikos carries a few ideas with it. Here are those ideas. The first is this. They all, they all have to do with kind of a commonness amongst us all. One, when you're talking about a household, you're talking about, you are talking about a place, a common proximity. We share space. Again, this has always been true of the people of God. We have always shared space with one another and rubbed shoulders with one another at least rhythmically one time a week. And so we share space. The building is not the church, right? We've all been taught that, right? The building is not the church, and it absolutely is not. But the people are the church. But the people, which are the church, always gather in a space. They gather in a time and a space. And so before you over-minimize the places we gather, realize to gather is to be in a place. <laughs> the church is not the building, but it is the place where the people of God show up. Like I can tell you at 9 and 1030, we're going to be here every Sunday. We're going to gather up. And a lot of other churches are doing this as well. But, but while we're not the place, we do have a place. Place matters. It's always mattered. Again, the details that God went over regarding the temple, the tabernacle, in his creation of the Garden of Eden, he cares about places. He cares about places. That's why we should care about the upkeep of our lawn. <laughs> the upkeep of our building. Does it point to Christ and his glory that we, we glorify him and want his praises and we don't want to be distracted by the chipping paint on the wall? Scott Rushing is leading a, a facility team. If you want to glorify God and worship God through the facility team, join up with Scott because it's worship to take care of of a place where God's people gather. It's an act of worship. Place matters, and according to this phrase, it should have a household-like quality to it. It shouldn't be just like any kind of place. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily your third place. You know, you got your household, you got your business, but then you have your third place. I think Starbucks made that up because they want to be your third place. We're not just a third place. We're a household. And that kind of equality should be involved in who we are as the church. I don't know about your household, but my household has chores. My household has things it needs to do. You know, across this building right now, you have people serving many of your kids, welcoming you with the hospitality of Jesus into our service by opening a door. You have people who are leading in song, prayers, calling us to worship, pushing the forward button on our lyrics so that we don't get behind in what we're singing. I mean, we all kind of join in. 
We have one member who tries to call all of you on a regular basis and get your prayer requests as a means by which to inform the elders on what needs to be prayed for. Like those of you who just won't turn in a connect card and ask for that prayer, well, we're going for it. We're going to go for you and find it out from you. (laughs) Of course, you have to let us have it. but And thank you, by the way, for trusting us with your prayers. Um, I got to say that because it's not a it's not a right. It's a privilege that you trust us with your prayers. It is. But what I'm saying is, is, is that it's not really a household if we're not serving and joining in and pitching in in some way. Like one of my kids, they get they they get they get it pretty hard if they're not pulling their weight. Why? Because it's good for them to contribute to the household. So we contribute in the ways we serve. We contribute in the ways we give. One of the common ways in which the people of God were common in the early church that they just, they went really overboard in making sure you knew is the commonness in sharing resources, both financial and other tangible resources. So you're not really being the church if you're not being a household that has things you share and pull together for the ministry and work of the larger household. Okay? So there's a common commonness, a common proximity. We share space, but there's also a common bond in a household. Now, sometimes we don't see this in our own households because the world is broken and sometimes our kids are jerks. You know, But in an ideal household, one that he's speaking of in terms of ideally in the household of God, you're talking about a common bond. We share our very lives. We don't just share the message of the gospel with one another, that we, of course, at least do that. That's permission to play. But we also share our very lives with one another. Paul went out to great pains to make sure that someone in one church understood that he had shared his life with them. We share our lives. And in sharing our lives, we are all, through the scriptures, referred to as siblings who have an older brother. His name is Jesus. We are also said to have brothers and sisters, one with another. Can I just tell you that if we were to get this right, I mean, just like if we were to pursue being good brothers and sisters of one another, good brothers and sisters of one another, we would present a radically beautiful and countercultural picture of what the gospel does in a people that are not beholden to and sold out to the larger cultural messages. What am I referring to? Surely you know that all relationships in our culture are getting sexualized off the charts. Way too much. It's absolutely insane that a man and a woman who are not married, who are not siblings in a blood relative way, cannot have great affection and sibling love for one another is a poor testimony to us living in the ghetto of a sexualized culture 
that says a man and a woman who are not married and siblings cannot even be near one another. You know, it's the Billy Graham philosophy. I don't ride with a woman alone in a car. That may be wise in many cases. I'm not even saying it's not. And it might be wise in your cases. But here's the thing. People are just so afraid to even have affections for one another. We're brothers and sisters. We should be able to be that with one another. That's a part of being the church. I got one member who, thankfully, asked me in advance as a means of thanks, said, can I give you a kiss on the cheek? This was a female person in our church. I said, sure. She did so. And I appreciate it. You know what I took it as? This is a sister who wanted to share great affections and had the respect to ask me in advance because she knows the culture we swim in. And she did it in front of my wife. <laughs> That's the other thing. We can desexualize relationships in our counterculture. Be siblings with one another, really siblings. And care and support and fight for one another in that. And we are also in our common bond called the collective bride or wife of Christ. That's as intimate as you can get. So this common bond, we share our very lives, is a part of being God's household. The last idea here is that we share a common parentage. See, it's God's household. Not my household, not your household, not this guy's household. God's household. We have a common Lord and Father. We share him and we share our older brother, Christ, through adoption, through his work on the cross. And this connects us to a common story. In other words, my story isn't really the story. God's story is the story, and the important thing is that when I am a part of his family, I begin to see my story as a part of his larger story. And so really, I integrate myself into his narrative and don't try to rope him into mine. And we share a common identity in our older brother Christ who gives us his identity so that we don't have to take on lesser trash identities. And we have a common future, one that was only earned and deserved of Jesus, but we are called co-heirs for that future. We are named it in the cross. We are now his co-heirs. All right, so if we want to be the church. We really need to be the church of the living God. We really need to be God's household. But he says one more thing as we get to our conclusion. He says, which is also the pillar and foundation of the truth. That really should read probably a pillar and foundation of the truth. The definite article is actually not in the language. Doesn't really change the meaning so much as it emphasizes the meaning that we are somehow to be the people that live by truth and display that truth for all to see. 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was booted from the Soviet Union many years ago, refused to live his life in accordance with the lies of the Soviet state. He was an evangelical Christian. And when they would try to convince him that there is not a God and others like them, they said, you are wrong, there is a God. They refused to live by lies because they knew as the church they are people of truth. We live by truth, not lies. In fact, his last words were for them to not live by those lies as he left the Soviet Union. What does it mean to live by the truth, to uphold it, to show it as grand and beautiful? Well, it actually tells us. We don't have to guess. Verse 16, most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. See, the mystery of godliness is the truth to which he refers to. The mystery of godliness is great. I love how he says most certainly, because that can also be translated most confessedly. This is something of a confessional he's giving us here. It's hymn of confession. So we could say that we're in being a pillar and buttress of the truth, being a pillar and foundation of the truth, that we're a confessional people. We confess only what is true by way of God is revealed as true and the greatest truth. And here it is, that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, or I believe it actually is translated messengers there, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, what has he just said? What has he just confessed? Let's just walk through it line by line. He says, he was manifested in the flesh. He's speaking to the incarnation, God's advent to us on planet Earth that we celebrate every December 24th and 25th, the coming of Christ into our world. He was manifested not just to our world, but in the flesh. That's important. In the flesh. He came to us and wasn't just a God amongst us, but was a God-man. He became the perfect of us. I'm not the perfect. You're not the perfect. None of us are perfect. Adam certainly wasn't perfect. And no one in his line are. But he was. This is interesting. The sheer physicality of the incarnation should really stun us and stop us to reflect on it a bit as to the meaning of it. Like it's just, that's really stunning. That God would enter our world, enter our physics our chemistry that we experience, and he would become flesh. God's most important move towards us in the person and work of the Son of God was done in the most physical way. He didn't send a text. He came. He showed up. Vindicated in the Spirit. God showed up is our message of truth. But he was also vindicated in the spirit. This is referring to the resurrection and the spirit that resurrected Christ from the grave. That's God, the Holy Spirit. 
vindicating the Spirit from his baptism, his sinless life, the miraculous works, and, and culminating in the resurrection, confirming all the things Jesus had ever said as being true, to be vindicated, to be declared the Son of God and the Savior of the world that he said he was. The resurrection was the culmination that told us it's all true. It's all true. And so we hold that truth high, that the resurrection means everything to us. If it doesn't, then you're misreading our apostle Paul as he tells us, if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is worthless and we are to be pitied for what we believe. But yet it is true and therefore we are not to be pitied. So we hold that truth high. Seen by angels, most translations will say that same word for angels is also translated messengers, many points in our scripture. I lean towards messengers, and here's why. I believe this, this, this work of praise, this work of confession is going in order of things. And he's saying, not that he was seen by the angels as he was resurrected and vindicated coming out of the tomb, but rather he was seen by messengers, witnesses, who would testify. Now, technically, the angels did testify, so it fits. But more importantly, the importance of physical eyewitness to Christ's resurrected body and his ministry post-resurrection until he ascended to heaven is critically important to the testimony of not just the early church, but to our testimony today. If they didn't see what they said they saw and testified to, then what are we actually believing in? That testimony was meant for us. And John even says his word of testimony on these matters are meant for you to believe. And so the testimony of what he had done and those seeing it, this presentation of himself, not dead but alive, has cosmic implications. The apostles and witnesses that would testify to the risen Christ would give birth to a testifying movement that continues to this day. To those who meet with and experience something of their grace when the risen Christ enters our life, grips our hard hearts and makes them soft for belief. That God is a God I have met. Not in the way that Paul met him on the road to Damascus, I guess. Not in the way that they saw and touched his, his hands. But I have a testimony too. And if my testimony isn't true, true in your ears, then I have the testimony of the apostles that saw it face to face. That matters. Preached among the nations. Proclaimed. Preached among the nations. So what we do in proclamation of the gospel is put the truth on a pedestal for all to see. And then it says, believed on in the world. Our belief was meant to also be a testimony. Our own belief. We weren't just people who have a message. We're people whose lives have a message. It's like the man who was born blind. What happened to you? I don't know. 
but I was blind. I see now. That's all our stories. I can't tell you exactly all the ins and outs of what God did. I was blind. I see now. I see now. Believed on in the world. We are a conversion receiving community. We are constantly seeing new spiritual birth and seeing the gospel multiply disciples. We should want that, pray for that. That should be normative. And then it says, taken up in glory. Again, if we're reading this to where order doesn't matter, then this is likely referring to his actual ascension into the clouds to be at the right hand of God. And that very well is the easiest reading of it. It could also mean and be attributed to the ways in which we will, like his being taken up in glory, likewise be taken up into glory as a result of having believed the gospel. I'm not really looking to push you one way or the other, but I do want you to understand that what is clear here is this. This is doxological. This is about God getting glory. Whatever truth we uphold, if it is not God glorifying, it should not be the truth that we're putting up. We want the kind of truth that glorifies me, you, City View Church. We want all eyes on Jesus. All eyes on Jesus. And so just so that we can review, we've moved by, we've moved through several things in this small hymn or confessional. And these things, this truth, to really uphold it, it should move us. It should move me. It should move you. To want to uphold it, not in some rigid, artificial way, but because our hearts are sold out to it. It should move us that God advented towards us, that he came to us when we could not go to him. It should move us that by God's victory over death, we are given life. It should move us that by the gospel's testimony handed down to us, we can also proclaim that same testimony. It should move us by proclaiming the gospel that has changed us could also change others. It should move us that, that by those that believe and receive new birth, how they glorify God in that new birth, that should move us to see that happen over and over again. And so our truth that we uphold demands or maybe results in response. Let us respond to this. The church is the gospel-entrusted missionary community that is expected to go and make disciples of Christ. Godliness is found. It's not a mystery. When it says the mystery of godliness, it means the mystery that is now revealed. If you didn't know that little tidbit about how the Greeks arrange, it's the mystery that's now revealed, not a mystery that remains a mystery. The mystery of godliness is found in trusting the finished work of Christ and proclaiming it to the world. The content of the truth is the mystery of godliness also. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 says it in another way. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. 
speaking to people in the church, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, i.e. the scriptures and what they've written as a result of God, the Holy Spirit, taking along their hand to write, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in conclusion, it's really important to recognize that in each of these insights, we see the gospel coming through clearly. In other words, we can't be the church had it not been for what Christ did on our behalf. But because of what Christ did on our behalf, we can actually go and be the church, friends. We can come and gather and be the church. We can go and scatter and be the church. And whatever we do, because as God's gathered people, every local church is in fact a snapshot of a, of a better kingdom, God's kingdom. It's an alternative society, a counterculture picture of God's redemption in Christ through the empowering gift of the Holy Spirit. We could not be the church had it not been what Christ did that gave us the Holy Spirit. I would be giving you instructions from the scriptures that you can't carry out. But because we have the Spirit, we can carry it out. As a family... Being a family, as this text tells us, a local church also testifies to the unmerited, undeserved adoption that we are given into the family of God through Christ. An adoption that makes us remarkably co-heirs with Christ. That's just, that's just bonkers. And all this comes by way of Christ's reconciling work on the cross and his vindicating resurrection. If it were not for his reconciling work on the cross... We could not be family and therefore be the church. We would never be able to be siblings, sons and daughters very well. But because of his victorious death, his reconciling work, we can. And as a people entrusted with the truth-bearing message of the gospel, a local church is pregnant with potential in the work of seeing people restored to the image of God they were meant to be in, to bring much glory in living out the creation mandate again. Do you know what the creation mandate is in terms of the New Testament? I'm talking about the mandate to spread God's glory and basically be his image in all the earth that we get out of Genesis 1. It's the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all kinds of people throughout all the earth, teaching them to obey all of I commanded. And it's all done with God present. I will be with you to the end of the age. Just like the original mandate, except this one is a redemption one. But it has the same effect ultimately when the new heavens and new earth come. We could not live this out, this great commission, this mandate, were it not for what Christ has done. So again, we are not given these words and they are impossible to fulfill. 
who are given these words, and the gospel has given us the pathway to fulfill these very words and be the church, be his church. Let's pray.